0: The Fantasy Animation Podcast is a completely independent production. It is made by experts in the field. Chris is a lecturer in Liberal Arts and Visual Cultures Education at King's College London and author of The Computer Animated Film, available in all good bookshops. And I, Alex that is, am a Senior Lecturer in Film and Media Studies at the University of Portsmouth and author of Encountering the Impossible, the Fantastic in Hollywood Fantasy Cinema, available in even better bookshops. We do this podcast to provide audiences with an informative and hopefully entertaining guide through the ways in which you can not only enjoy fantasy and animation, but study it, examine it, explore it, and of course, make it and have a career in it. I hope you enjoy the show. everybody welcome to the latest episode of the fantasy animation podcast with me Alex Sargent and Chris Holliday but he'll be here in just a minute um, it's me on my own just for a second I'm not going to be in the rest of the episode so I thought I'd hog the limelight just for a few seconds this episode is a little bit different to others um, it isn't a conversation between me and Chris and a guest it's actually a conversation Chris and one of our former guests um, Chris McKenna um, you may remember him from the Dumbo episode, um, had uh, a while back in July at the BFI South Bank as part of a study education day celebrating 100 years of Disney entitled Once Upon a Time a Disney Day. Now Chris, my Chris and, and the other Chris, um, were together on, on a panel discussing um, the relationship between Disney, technology and innovation. Um, and what you're going to hear is that panel, um, because we managed to record it live at the time. So thanks to the BFI for facilitating that. So um, it was great to be in the room. I unfortunately couldn't be there because I was off um, doing my own stuff at the time. Um, research, business stuff, I promise, not play- otherwise I'd have been there with bells on. Um, but uh, but Chris held up the fort very well and probably did a well did a much better job than I would have done and asked some really great questions to to his guest Chris McKenna um, and, and they discussed more broadly than we did in the Dumbo episode the kind of the long history of Disney's track record with technology and and the way in which technology plays out in in the contemporary world. What you're going to hear is Chris Holiday, our Chris, um, do a little introduction. He'll give a kind of very quick micro lecture. Uh, On the history of of technology in the Disney studio. Um, So, you're going to hear him in full academic mode. That's going to be a treat for us all. Um, Normally, he's just gassing on with me, but you're going to hear him actually. He actually does know what he's talking about, everybody, it turns out. Um, Then, you're going to hear a quick conversation, well, a conversation for about 20 minutes or so between uh, the two Chris's, um, a little bit of back and forth, and then some audience questions. It was a live event, so there are some things on the podcast that don't come out quite so easily. There's mentions of clips that aren't in there for obvious reasons, and um, there's a audience uh, Q&A at the end and again, um, most of the questions come out well on the microphone, but there's a couple of little garbled sections, but I think there's enough for you to work out exactly what's going on Um, otherwise, yeah, you'll have to get down and and, and come to one of these next time we do one, Um, yeah I'm going to shut up now I'm going to let you enjoy uh, the episode. In fact, I will enjoy it with you. Um, And I'll hand it over to Chris Holliday, our Chris, and Chris McKenna, our very special guest, in the BFI South Bank recorded back in July of this year.
1: Thank you so much. Um, um, Technology has been mentioned a few times and this is the focus for our next session um, Technology and Innovation Um, and this session will be led by Dr. uh, Christopher Holliday who is a lecturer in Liberal
2: Arts and Visual Cultures Education at King's College London. He is also the creator of the website, blog and podcast Fantasy Animation Um, and Chris will be joined by a very special guest who I will let Chris to Introduce. So please join me in giving them a very well welcome to the stage. Great. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, first of all, thank you, everyone, uh, for coming, and thank you to Aga and her team for putting all of this... Um, this together. Um, I'm sort of giving away the special guest by having his name on the the screen. And apologies, there was a bit of kind of um, formatting with my PowerPoint, so hopefully it it all kind of um, runs smoothly. Um, So yeah, so welcome to this final session on on craft. As I guess said, I'm uh, Chris Holliday and I teach just across the the river um, at King's College London, so I teach animation and and visual cultures. Um, But I'm also here today in another capacity as the co-host of um, the fantasy animation podcast, which looks at the relationship of the historical, cultural, aesthetic relationship between um, fantasy, storytelling, and the medium of, of animation. Um, now, normally, I have a, a co-host for the podcast, but I'm flying solo today, or at least solo as a, as a presenter. My special guest um, for this conversation is Chris McKenna, current head of Creative Operations at the Visual Effects Studio Moving Picture Company. Now, he's worked on a host of Hollywood blockbusters and franchise films. Um, including several of the live-action Disney remakes, I'm going to use the word "live-action" with quote marks, and we can perhaps talk about why that's why I'm doing this. Um, uh, including jo- *Jungle Book*, *Lion King*, uh, *Dumbo*, *Lady and the Tramp*, and the recent *The Little Mermaid*, where he worked as the head of layouts and animation at MPC. Now, before I chat with Chris um, about how he got involved in the wor- in working in this new cycle of Disney. Um, Live action remakes, uh, and to hear about the challenges of adapting some of these sort of beloved animated classics. Um, I wanted to begin by sort of sketching the historical relationship between Disney and technology, but equally kind of pulling together some of the threads and things that people have said um, related to kind of sound and colour and uh, kind of space. My, my research at King's is really in digital technology, um, so I want to talk a little bit about computer graphics as well. So during the course of my um, research into CG, computer graphics, digital techniques and technology, as well as our 100-plus episodes of the of the podcast podcast, um, Disney has naturally come up a lot, and we've we've managed to get um, podcast episodes with Clements and Musker. We talked about Atlantis, the Lost um, uh, Atlantis, the Lost Empire, with Gary Truesdale, and we talked to, to Tom Sito, who has been mentioned, who worked on a number of the kind of Disney Second Renaissance films. So we've had a kind of series of conversations with. Academics, visual effects artists, people that work in the in the visual effects industry, uh, and then people that work at the at the Disney studio. And as I said, one of the things Disney comes up a lot in the conversation between fantasy and, and animation. Of course, it does. Why are so many fantasy films animated? Why are so many animated films fantasy? Essentially. Um, Uh, But one of the central elements that defines, I think, my interest in the studio is its connection to kind of narratives of of technological innovation, essentially, and and narratives of progress. Now, Walt's longstanding desire to innovate, I think, has already been sort of touched on in many ways. And I think it's served to mythologize his status as a particular kind of unique American um, genius, equivalent to Gershwin Berlin. Um, Thomas Edison and Henry Ford I think Ford is particularly important if we think about the industrialization of of animation as an art form so I'm hoping this works and doesn't explode yes okay Um, so for scholar J.P. Tillot who's written a book called The Mouse Machine which is The title of the book is both a reference to the industry of animation, but it's also a reference to Disney's relationship to technology. Um, He says that investment in technology and technological culture has always represented a fundamental cornerstone of the Disney multimedia enterprise, including the company's sort of now tentacular reach across, since the 1950s, across television, radio, the internet, book and and, um, music publishing, theme parks, theater, and the leisure industry. In fact, a lot said that the studio has, quote, like no other American cultural institution, always been invested in the technological. Now, fast forward to 2023 and Walt's link to technology. So in response to Sam's question, what's the most recent hologram? It's probably this one. Um, Walt's link to technology has been kind of dramatically and playfully realized in February of this year when a ghostly digital hologram of the man made its debut posthumously as the virtual host of Disney 100, the exhibition at the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. So the digital avatar greets Guests live, there's going to be a lot of this, I think, Uh, guests live as they begin their journey through the many gallery installations, um, artworks, props, audiovisual material, displays, these kinds of things housed in the museum that honors 100 years of the Walt Disney Company. Now, the studio's animated features are, of course, central to this technological narrative of innovation um, and have evolved, I think, the animated medium from the 30s and 40s through sophisticated and and, and sort of influential technological developments. Animation is a technology of representation, like photography, but it has also included specific technological developments, um, often understood as in service of a particular kind of hyper-realist aesthetic. Um, or visual style. So as a result, Walt's desire to innovate and harness, I think, can be absolutely tallied to um, the emergence of animation as a viable economic industry in the US. He didn't invent animation, but he sort of solidified it as an industrial art form uh, and and sort of codified a particular kind of look and feel to the US-American animated cartoon. Innovation was vital in the golden age. One of the reasons for innovation is, is aesthetic and economic, but it's also about product differentiation. So it kind of cuts across some of the studio specificities um, during this period of of Golden Age animation. And a quick look at the Disney feature animation unit, some of the short films since the 30s, I think, reveals... Um, particular kinds of moments that speak to this technological kind of culture. Um, So first off, of course, is is sound, and I'm hoping to kind of bring some of the discussions we've had um, together. In his book, His History of Disney, Demystifying Disney, um, Chris Pallant says the industrial aspects of Disney's sound productions is where Disney's contribution to the development of sound rests, not as an innovator, but as a producer and I think Sadin was kind of talking to this a little bit, whose works announced a newfound cohesion between animation and sound. So, of course, we've already heard at length about Mickey Mousing and that kind of tight synchrony of sound and image. Walt allegedly mortgaged uh, both his studio, his house, and sold his car to come up with the $5,000 to bring that power cinephone sound technology. Um, for this short, sound effects, of course, as we've heard, and sound design play a really important element in early Disney, indicated, of course, by the name City Symphony's... Um, Anyway, in films like The Skeleton Dance, you can see and hear how these editing patterns, as Sidney was saying, are kind of closely synced to the beats. And I think animation in particular allows you to animate to the beats and the pulses of the the rhythm. Um, At this point, I think it's important to say, and it came up actually when Amy was talking earlier, that at the same time as Walt's investments in these technologies clearly paid off, um, he didn't do this alone, advancing sound and anima- uh, sound for animation was this collaborative process, exactly as you were saying, um, that involved both men and women who have experimented with music, and of course the craft, honing the craft of animation more broadly, and who are perhaps written out of histories. So I think there's lots of work being done on the women of, of Disney, which is important to know. Um, next up is color. So again, Amy mentioned, um, I think at a time when color was still being debated in the, in the live action context as a mere fad, Um, to the extent that in in 1940, only 12% of Hollywood films were shot in colour. Over at Disney, as Amy suggested, inroads were really being made um, across the studio, short cartoons from 1932 onwards, beginning with Flowers and Trees, of course. These were cartoons widely heralded as shining lights for the application of technicolour and the technicolour process. It was Disney's films that were credited as really expressing the virtuosity of color palettes and the craft of animation as a creative medium. Color supported music and narrative as part of the illusion of life. Now, here's a quote from um, Herbert Kalmer, who was the co-founder and president of the Technicolor Motion Picture Corporation, who said, finally, Walt Disney tried it as an experiment on one of his silly symphonies. The first attempt was the delightful flowers and trees, following which Disney contracted for a series. Now, I think the word experiment is really important. It's often, you know, we think of maybe the Silly Symphonies, symphonies as this chaotic period of trial and error before Disney came to Snow White. Um, that's not the case. These are films that are wonderful in and of themselves, um, but I think that, that kind of chaotic writing of history is something that Disney is absolutely in, in kind of bed, embedded in. Um, for a time, Disney held the patent on Technicolor, as Amy said this morning, and an exclusive contract with Technicolor in the 30s and Lewis Jacobs in the New York Times um, writing in 1935 argued that Disney alone understands the problem of color on the screen so I guess one of the things to think about is the artistry that we've just had Helen talking about not forgetting the artistry within all of these technological processes but he was Disney was considered this problem solver with regards to, to color another important um, yep another important uh, Disney development Alongside sound in the adoption of the the Technicolor three-strip process or three-strip Technicolor process was the multi-plane camera, so a device that allowed the camera to move vertically rather than horizontally, so planes of action organised and you can see um, on the left-hand side the arrangement of the multiplane camera that allowed for depth and dimension. So, in the same way, sound is enriching the image, you've got the image being enriched through camera movement. Each of the planes, like a theatrical stage, played with foreground, background, lit differently. And you can see a number of sequences. The Old Mill is probably the best example, the opening sequence of the Old Mill, which is just a camera movement. Uh, and then when Snow White gets lost in the woods. Um, it's a good example of, of trees that are coming into your eye line i think through the through the achievements of the multiplane camera um, so what we're essentially seeing is is through each of these technological developments and um, and this is something I think we can talk about in relation to re- technology and realism. Um, with each technological development, Disney has been credited as nudging the medium or coercing the medium more towards a kind of hyperrealist or neo-realist pra- practice, practice and set of visual orthodoxies more akin to live action um, or at least shots and styles that are cut from the same cloth maybe as live action. This is part of the reason, and Sam mentioned Eisenstein earlier, this is part of the reason Eisenstein had a real resistance to Bambi He was like, you should, it could just be filmed. Why is this animation, it could just be filmed. So there's a bit of um, the silly symphonies of this chaotic play of sound and image, this kind of plasmatic play of sound and image. Eisenstein was a bit resistant to Disney being moved towards this more realistic practice. and technology is obviously part of that, if you compare it as well with the more anarchic possibilities of sound and image across Europe, so some of the visual music traditions um, coming particularly out of Germany, I think. Um, between 1930s and the 1980s, there are many other important... If I sit like that, I'm going to get cramp, I'll sit there this way. Um, between the 1930s and the 1980s, there are many other important moments in Disney's technological trajectory. We've got cost-effective Xerox... Um, Copying equipment um, in the 1960s used for 101 Dalmatians, which involved transferring drawings by the animators directly to animated cells without the need for inking processes. We've also got the um, computer animation production system, or CAPS process, which was developed in 1987 at trials at Walt Disney World and was first implemented at Disney um, in, I suppose, one of its most famous sequences, the final scene of The Little Mermaid. It's also used in in Basil the Great Mouse Detective in the sort of... um, chase in the cogs of of Big Ben and then Beauty and the Beast um, to digitally transfer hand-drawn images into a computer. Uh, The CAPS technology's other innovation, uh, or more substantial innovation, I should say, was the simulation of camera movements afforded by the particular arrangement of digital cells. Now, this turn to to the computer by Disney is particularly important. Digital technology is a defining note of the Disney um, second renaissance, both the industrial infrastructure, they're incorporating digital processes into their workflow as much as it is aesthetic with regards to the the sequence from Beauty and the Beast that that Helen showed. Um, We've also got... Um, uh, computer programs so the innovation, and a lot of these innovations are being used for action sequences I think um, and musical sequences, I think we tend to think of the incorporation of digital processing as the wildebeest stampede oh that is moving, good um, uh, the wildebeest stampede from the Lion King um, but it was also used for the, the you know, sequences for like Beauty and the Beast, so musical sequences, so the soft image crowd simulation for the Lion King, um, the crowd software system, uh, the crowd software system that could generate individual uh, animated character templates and set the parameters of of character movements, for The Hunter of Notre Dame, a very underrated and brilliant movie. Um, CG faux plane, which created the environments and firework effects in Mulan. And finally, Disney's proprietary painting and rendering software system, Deep Canvas, pioneered in Tarzan and then used in Treasure Planet and Brother Bear, a digital paint system that reinterpreted the concept of animated layout. Um, over the last two decades, so my research is interested in, in computer-animated films, over the last two decades, the Disney Studios' turn to feature-length computer-animated film production with Chicken Little in 2005 has perhaps represented the peak of its transition from pencil to, to pixel, um, or pencil to um, computer, I suppose. Um, and films released since 2005 stand as these really important digital entries in Disney's feature animation, feature animation unit, I should say. Um, they are further examples as well of Disney's responsiveness to technological change and the studio's desire to sort of compete and what with or compete in an industry or a current state of play that is highly technological. And we've talked kind of in passing about kind of AI and the computer and actually the role that that plays. These are very top down ways of thinking about the computer. You can find a lot of these um, behind the scenes stuff on, on YouTube, actually you can find these things because Disney are telling you about how innovative they are. So one needs to, t- to understand that these are very top down ways of, of technology and the way that it's framed. Um, there are um, another set of digital live action digital features that are important to discuss, which brings me to the part of the the session that you're sort of really all here for. Um, uh, So as I said, I'm delighted to uh, welcome Chris McKenna. So he is, as a reminder, the current head of creative operations at Moving Picture Company. The reason that he's sitting here is that he has worked on many of these Live action remakes. He was lead technical animator. We'll talk about this. Um, uh, he was lead technical animator on Tim Burton's reimagining of Dumbo, and we uh, Chris was very kindly a podcast guest as well on our episode on Dumbo, which was um, about two or three weeks ago, least about two or three weeks ago. Um, before taking on the role of uh, head of technical animation for The Lion King in 2019, he's also just come off duties, as I said, as head out, head of layout and animation uh, on The Little Mermaid. So thank you from one Chris, well from bearded Chris to another. Thank you. Not oh, at all. Thank um, you. Uh, So, firstly, can you tell um, us how you got involved in working, I suppose, at MPC, but also kind of your move into these um, live action films?
1: Right, yeah, absolutely. So, I'm very much on the front line of making these images that are all seeing, which is why you probably can't believe that I'm 18 years old. Um, (laughs) And you're right not to believe that as well. Um, So yeah, I started as an artist right at the beginning of The Jungle Book when it was first uh, being imagined as something that possibly Disney could do within the new technology. Um, And then worked as an artist on that, worked my way through different stages uh, within that film, moved up towards like a senior animator or technical animation um, uh, artist. Just to explain that very quickly, so animation, obviously do the performance. And technical animation is not something that's really known of so much. It's more more known as, I guess, creature effects within the industry. But there's a saying within the department, which hopefully I'm not going to insult any animators here in the room, but it's basically animation, make the performance, and then tech anim, make it look good. So take with that what you will, but basically doing the finishing touches, adding the fur dynamics, adding the ground collisions of skin on the floor, all those kind of finishing techniques that you see within, within the production, muscle simulation, sculpting of anatomy, if it's needed. Um, and then, yeah, basically progressed my career through that, through being an artist, moved out to senior and um, technical animator, became head of department, and now currently head of creative operations for MPC in London. So it certainly keeps me busy. It's probably the right way to explain the title.
2: So, I mean, this is one of the questions I prepared for you. So, <laughs> gonna, so technical animation is connected more to character than anything else, would you say?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So, based on creature effects, I guess more so than um, we still did. We touch on like environment dynamics and all those grass grassy plains and trees that you see moving are involved in that as well. Very much the technical aspect, more of a simulation rather than animation.
2: Yeah. Well, actually, this is probably a good, when you talked about the, the simulation, this is probably a good opportunity to show the clip. We've got an example um, to, to from The Lion King or from that Chris has kindly provided from MPC about how these kind of live-action films are produced and the tech, the, the sort of, the space that these films occupy is this convergence of multiple technological processes that are landscape in some ways, but often rooted in character. So, um, yeah. could we get out of the clip, please? Always wanted to say that at the BFI. Could we have clip? <laughs> so There we go. Remember, they're live action. Um, so. So the computer obviously provides you with a, a kind of a really broad range of tools in terms of the animated craft. Um, so tell us about uh, The Lion King. What, how, what was your role on The Lion King specifically? Yeah,
1: so uh, I was basically, I was transitioning at that point over towards um, from being a lead artist into the head of department. So very much both sides within that project. That's why it's quite close to my heart as well, because... I was literally involved, as I say, in producing the images, but also managing the people and the teams around that for that particular department. So, again, mostly based within the technical animation world at this point, looking at, like, fur dynamics and the environment dynamics. What are fur dynamics? Um, So, yes, so basically, obviously, the lion mane is going to be a huge part of this project and something that was brought up right at the early stages, of course. Um, And so looking at the way that we could actually make that move in an efficient way, because obviously we have to remember that we have to deliver these projects um, within a specified time range, because Disney obviously wouldn't appreciate it if we took our own time um, as much as we'd like to as artists. Um, so yeah, we, we, we use new technology in order to, uh, to to do what we did on The Lion King. And we also used proprietary tools we developed ourselves, And that's something that I'm really passionate about as well, actually finding different ways to create Um, the things that you see on the screen, looking at efficiencies, but also looking at ways that makes it more enjoyable for the artist as well. So that even goes to like UIs and making it more um, artistic centric for the artist. So we're talking about going back to when people were literally drawing on a piece of paper. How can we make that same experience um, within the computer? And of course, now we've got new technology with uh, like, you know, goggles, VR, 3D, bits and pieces, sculpting. Um, so yeah there's lots going on in that world uh, I'm deviating slightly no, no, no. but because
2: <laughs> um, well, I was going to say you've obviously got two competing sets of challenges you've got the challenges of technology we we're trying to work out some of these presumably these problems that you don't yet know what they're going to be yeah. because you, yeah. mains have to and fur has to move in a particular kind of way well, I'd like to talk to you about performance a little bit later on and, and whether or not you can kind of consider yourself um, uh, an actor but I suppose the other side of these challenges is equally that you are animating films that people know and you yeah. are animating kind of these beloved animated classics. So I just wondered, were you obviously you're conscious of that? But how did that did that not play into you know you're thinking about how these films are going to be received? You presumably know the films really well. So how, how does that work? Your role on the, on a film like The Lion King, which I mean, of course it's a stage show as well. It's a number of shorts. It's it's sequels. It's mid mid-quels, It's this kind of multimedia object. But you're also remaking The Lion King.
1: Yeah, incredibly nerve wracking. I, I can't <laughs> explain that enough. Um, yeah, we're watching these characters on the screen and then suddenly we're uh, involved in making them move and in making them perform in a way that we know is gonna get criticized as well right. for every single slight detail. Simba looks slightly different. His mouth doesn't work in the same sort of way. Obviously, we're doing photo reel as well. Yeah. So it's um, it's difficult to get the balance but if we talk about uncanny valley kind of situation, the difficult balance of getting photo real creatures on screen, but as well as the character performance that we all know and love. Mm-hmm. And that's always the difficult balance ensuring in sh- in sh- in making, making sure that it's emotive enough that the audience would appreciate it, um, but also still fits within that real world situation. And if just to go back to something like The Jungle Book, for example, where you've got an actual real boy, in most of the shots, obviously, yeah. we need to make sure that that ties up as well. So it's a very difficult balance to make so sure. Is that it more works. freeing to not have those live-action elements that you? Or freeing's maybe the wrong word. It, but. Yes, it is slightly. Yeah, um, Lion King, for example, where it's full CG apart from I think one sky in in the whole show what? is not. Um, then obviously we've got a little bit more freedom. But as I say, the difficult thing that we have is that it's photo real. So we still have to do within the realms of. Um, what everyone expects photoreal to look like. Yeah.
2: Was the original a really? I mean, it's going to sound an obvious. Was it an obvious reference point? Like, were you matching up? Because some of these remakes tread quite different ground. Um, some are quite similar to the original. So, if we think about storyboarding the process of designing this animated film, you've essentially got your storyboards because the storyboards are the original animated film. So, how much of it was? How much of the? Much of a reference point was the. Original yeah. form, the
1: '94. Yeah, it's a good. Absolutely, like we always reference back to the original um, performance, if you like, because that's what the audience is going to expect as well. Some similarities between the way uh, the characters move, even. Um, but I think there some, was something insane, like about 200 hours of reference was shot for um, this, and we was visiting zoos to try and take, you know, obviously live action um, at reference, if you like. Um, So, yeah, that's always going to be a massive part of what we do. And just character movement alone, obviously, we're looking at photo reels, so we need to make sure they move in the right way. And I'm sure you watching the film, watching any of these films these days, you'll notice the slight way that a tiger doesn't actually walk like that or a giraffe's neck doesn't quite bend in that way. So you have to be particularly pedantic um, to make sure that it basically covers the needs of us knowing photo real situations, but also the emotive characters to get across a story effectively. Um, the time has come
2: for me to talk about these. Um, so a lot of these films are, as you said, The, the Jungle Book does include a live action element, includes the Mowgli, um, but a lot of these films, and I think there's a, an interesting way that they're received in terms of them being live action, um, live action remakes that are quite clearly from the clip. You can see really technological spaces um, and this question of photorealism and why we need to qualify my, why they're live action. They, they're, they are live action in the sense that live action is an aesthetic that has been copied. That is the definition of photorealism. It's it's the replication of lens-based media. Um, the computer doesn't look like anything. It looks like numbers and wires, but it can be made to look like anything. It can look like a line of charcoal on a page or a pencil or gouache. Or, so it can adopt and, and copy all these styles, but it's... It doesn't look like anything in and of itself. One of the things it did very early on is copy lens-based media, so refraction of light when light looks like it's being entered... It looks like it's entering into a a lens, the playing with deep focus, cinematography, virtual cinematography. These are all ways in which we've understood computer graphics, essentially. So we're dealing with a film that is trying to replicate lens-based media.
1: Were you working on an animated film or a live-action film? Oh, the big question. Um, I am challenged in answering that question. What do you think? Maybe what do you think of that that distinction? I would say live action. Okay. Yeah, because um, our focus, our priority was to make it as real as possible. And if we talk about animation, we're talking about uh, exaggerating real life so much. So I would go more down the route of live action obviously a very hot topic and um you know it's just just really interesting when you
2: see a clip like that that
1: is really going through some of the processes and
2: the outcome is i I agree it is a live action film um because it's adopting live action as an aesthetic it's just a different way of thinking about live action photography
1: absolutely yeah and also because there's so much new technology evolving and we're talking about motion capture vr um, the game engine stuff that's obviously happening a lot now Maybe the definition just isn't there as well just yet as we evolve the process and look at new technologies. Yeah. Maybe, you know, those Oscar categories maybe need to evolve. As yeah, well. that's, yeah, and I think the, the,
2: the murmuring implies that there'll be some questions about, about that. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, just had a couple of, of, of other ones, really. Do you, in that issue of performance, uh, and again, this is one of the de- debates that comes, I mean, an animator as, who owns, who, own, who performs the digital image, I suppose? The... the, the um, <laughs> collaborative you know all the the animators who work on it the, the voice actors who work on it the motion capture performer who might not be the voice actor and we always think we always need to think of digital performance as an accumulation of different kinds of contributions of course um do you see your and one of those is up the animator as actor so do you see yourself as a as an actor in the way that you're trying to craft
1: performance absolutely so um i think uh, in terms of animation specifically it's very easy sometimes once you get involved in these characters and you start um, performing you're basically the puppeteer i love that you start performing and you start yeah, you yeah. do you are the performance artist and you shoot yourself as reference and that is driven as part of the character. And actually, as part of the process, you can identify specific animators that have worked on specific shots, because you can literally see their performance within you know, the individual shots, which makes it um, you know, quite interesting to be able to go and talk to someone directly about, can you just change your performance a little bit so the character's performance is a bit more yeah. what we want as part of the story? Um, but yeah, very much so. You sell yourself to these characters, even more so because it's Disney and because these are beloved characters. Uh, there's no way that anyone on the team would just be doing it because they want. They like computers. They're doing it because they love these characters and you sell yourself to these characters. Mm. The
2: issue of performance, I think, in the way that you've described it is really interesting because the spectator obviously never sees, ceases to... To, to believe in a unified performance, the Simba in one shot is the same as the performance is continuous, and yet you're saying you're watching it, perhaps being able to discern the different contributions of absolutely. the animator yeah. Absolutely. But from a spectatorial point of view, we we are kind of you just have to believe, and this you know this is true of Hollywood cinema in the 20s and 30s. we think about stunt doubles and cutting into different kinds of performers to create the illusion of a unified performance, this is just. A, almost an intensification of these kinds of long-standing um, processes. I'm gonna do my best to to kind of keep to to time so that we don't take any time out of the break or the the round table, but I I guess my final question before I open it up to to people who I'm sure have lots and lots of questions, um, is there a shot or a sequence from The Lion King that you're most either most proud of or the one that caused you sort of sleepless nights
1: that you're like, that's the one that I, you know, that's the one? Absolutely. I think, well, first of all, every single shot (laughs) <laughs> the, the film. Yeah, yeah, the whole film. Um, again, you know, because it is such a beloved film and these characters are known f- throughout all generations as well, every single shot um, was, was very... Uh, traumatic's the wrong word, but nerve-wracking in order to make sure it was as good as we could get it for the audience. Um, from my point of view, I always like the technical side of things. So I come from a technical background. So the shots where we've invented new tools or new workflows or when we've used new bits of software or invented proprietary software in order to make things happen. So you're making your own software to solve a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that, that for me is, is some of the best stuff. But the iconic sequences within the, within the film with obviously the Mufasa clinging to the edge of the cliff or that's your trauma um, that, that is your trauma. incredible yeah. trauma yeah um but yeah all those individual um really highlighting sequences for me was everyone just put a lot of effort into it because we wanted it to be correct and um yeah so literally i don't know if i really answered your question No you know Basically every single <laughs> shot yeah <laughs> um, well, we've
2: got, I think we've got about 10 minutes for, for questions, so if people do have questions about um, kind of any of the fil- any of the processes perhaps, or any of the, the films that um, Chris has worked on, um, yeah, we'll come straight
1: at the front. By the way, just whilst we're waiting for the microphone, I think someone in the front row said about um, the the detail in... in I'm sorry, I'm not sure who it was. <laughs> but that's such an important thing for us now because, because the audience these days have learned how to watch these kind of films. Right, if we harp back to, um, you know, no longer have we got audiences, the myth of audiences running out of the cinema because a train is approaching the screen, or Charlie Chapman pointing at an item before he approaches it in order to tell the audience or to teach the audience to look at something now, we know how to watch these films, so all those small nuances and small details has become such an important part of what we do Mm -hmm. and um, that's why we're literally still frame by frame, you know, if we look back at, obviously, the original animation, anyway, sorry, I'm taking over time, but yeah, please. So thank you, firstly, for a really interesting conversation and for coming along. Um, On the point of animator as actor, obviously that's an idea that goes way back to the 1930s, and so I was wondering, Chris, do you feel that uh, obviously, there are lots of differences technologically, but fundamentally, do you feel you're in the same tradition as those 1930s Disney animators, or is there some kind of meaningful difference? And if so, what is that difference? Absolutely, great question. So I think it's, we are continually trying to add the artistic interaction back into using computers. Um, like what I mentioned earlier about UIs changing and all that sort of thing. Um, so very much still the puppeteer, still the performance of these characters is the, the vital point. And because, let's face it, animators want to animate. They don't want to have a crash and then have to turn the computer on and off again in order to make it work. And believe me, that's what our software department says as an auto tagline. Have you tried turning it off and back on again? It still works, trust me. Um, so yeah, very much so. And we're always striving to make it much more artistic-centric rather than just technological errors, effectively. Um, so yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, <laughs> cool, cool. I mean, it is interesting that our, obviously in terms of the style, the level of expression, I know this is sort of uh, polarizing debate, it is very different, but it's interesting to still have the performances there. Absolutely, yeah, and that's important. Otherwise, we could use um, coders to make these films. We're using artists to develop these characters, and that's what's important for us. Otherwise, you won't get the character performance that you expect on the screen. Yeah. I suppose just to to kind of um,
2: jump in, each of these kind of technological moments, you could say within this historical Disney narrative, well not even Disney narrative, animation narrative, but you could also broaden out cultural narrative, you know, signals the end of the, the, the human you have the same debates in the early 2000s around motion capture and the synthespian and and particular kinds of cyber stars and avatars you have the crisis of humanity around then and then 20 years later we're having it again around ai and machine learning and the death of kind of agency human agency and and this is kind of why certainly in, in some of the stuff i've read around digital technology the distinction between computer generated and computer animated the difference being kind of automatic process uh, and a recent event I went to around ai the difference between ai and ai driven there's a lot of people still working we need the hu- we still need the human this isn't a, yet a crisis of humanity but it's interesting how these narratives repeat during the course of of animation history i would say other questions yes this is
1: in a live-action way. Um, I wonder how was uh, the music side of things, uh, of recreating the soundtrack again, did you have to obviously bring back the same same composers and they had to do something uh, slightly different than the original film? And um, obviously since, the, uh, the relationship between animators and musicians, like in the 1930s and 60s, was very uh, like a collaborative relationship. So I wonder how was it like in, in these films and how was it like to recreate um, uh, the original music? Yeah, good question. And absolutely the music's fundamental, right? Because it's, it's the 50% of what we know in terms of making these projects. So, of course, we uh, reference the original original um, composition as well as, you know, trying to put our own flavour on top of that. Um, in terms of animation as well, they are obviously listening to both, um, not at the same time, that would be ridiculous. But, um, that, you know, that is their reference point as well, and the performance that they got from the characters based on the original composition also is reflected in the way that they respond to the original composition which we've got um, in our modern day films basically so get yeah, a huge a huge influence in terms of the actual performance itself as well and did you bring back the same yeah and we do that for every project yeah we always bring back our original as much as possible <laughs> of course um, even just to talk to them even to get their flavour to get their understanding of why they wrote certain things in certain ways and um, because, as I say, every little tiny detail influences the performance. So yeah, in any way that we can do that and understand the character more, we'll, we will do that 100%, yeah. Great,
2: any questions? Yeah, tap in the blue, I think, yeah. Oh, behind you, yeah.
1: Hi, Uh, there's no way of me asking this without it seeming negative, so I apologize to start off (laughs) with. I've got to go, actually. Um, (laughs) Clearly, they're technological marvels and the creativity that's in them is amazing, but they haven't been as well received as the originals. Do you think that there's an argument that the more realistic you make these, the magic and the sort of fantasy element of it is removed such that they're not as engaging for the audience? Very good question, and I'm sure that's rattling through the brains of everyone as well. <laughs> and I, I would agree with you. I mean, we are still early days within the visual effects industry, let alone um, the way that we are producing these films. So there's a lot of um, responsibility to make sure that we deliver what we want based on the original um, film of, of, of you know, the Disney Lion King, for example, and then looking at this one. But yes, we can't do complete over-characterized characters in a photo real world, which is difficult for us as performers because we have to dial it down quite a lot to match uh, nature, which is why reference is so important as well to make sure that we're surrounding ourselves with reference the whole time. Um, in terms of losing the magic, yeah, I think actually it's not the same. We're not trying to recreate those cartoon characters that we have previously. We're doing our own style, our own flavour of... I say we, obviously, we're driven by Disney. Um, but, you know, we're putting our own our own make on it. It's a retelling of the original story, which is why we can slightly um, move away from having to try and absolutely represent the original magic that, that we're calling it from the original... Um, having said that, I'm super proud of Lion King in terms of what we have delivered. It's almost one of those projects, I remember when we first watched it in the screening, um, it's something that you could almost pause on any frame and you can get a printout and you could print it out and hang it on your wall. Every single shot is like a showreel. reel. Um, and it, we're all super proud of, you know, we've got muscle technology in there, we've got skin sliding, fur dynamics, the characters themselves, being able to constrain ourselves within real world, but also making sure that they uh, they 're doing the dialogue correctly, obviously lions don 't actually talk so or like us, so we have to make their faces move in a way that would represent a style that we would use if we were to kind of humanize them a little bit more and to get the dialogue across and all of the all of the roller coaster of emotions that are involved in that um, so i 'm probably wandering a little bit away from your question but I think fundamentally, it's a retelling of the story. It's not basically trying to represent exactly the magic of the original.
2: Uh, we've got time for one last question. Uh, yeah, you had Janet in the green. Hi. Yeah. Firstly, thanks for the talk. It was really good. Uh, nice to hear. Things on the technical side. I'm kind of curious just on that tech because actually, with the technology that's driving all this animation, um, does it feel like there's a ceiling in sight? Because it looks pretty realistic already. I know you've talked about, you know, muscle technology, fur technology, and things like that. I'm just kind of thinking, while it looks pretty realistic already, what does it look like in five years, 10 years, that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, great question. So absolutely, when you're working on the project, you're developing all these new technologies and using new stuff that's in the industry, not just within our studio. Um, And you think, yeah, that's it. And then suddenly a small project comes along and they want to do something in a different way and you have to create something once again. So every single project that we work on has to have something new, which sounds implausible, incredible, because um, you'd think we'd done it all basically at this point, all of the, the projects that we'd worked on, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter's, all of these sort of things, you'd think we've covered almost every type of character. But it's not true, the technology advances, obviously it runs in parallel of us trying to be more efficient as well Um, we need to produce these within business constraints etc and now like i mentioned earlier we're looking at unreal technology this game engine stuff it's all like such a massive buzzword within the industry right now and it's pretty game changing ironically Um, so it's it's something there's always something new in every single project that we do in terms of making it more photo real we are still currently looking at new technologies in order to do that we, I think I'm allowed to say this. I'm sure no one's recording. Uh, we're working on Lion King 2 as well, so we've basically got new technology that we'll be using in that. It's also going to be slightly different in terms of the characterisation and the performance as well, so watch this space, super exciting things happening there.
2: That was a perfect place to end. Um, I guess I'll hand over to Aga, but thank you for joining me. <laughs>